You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, where we offer courses, events, and more for adults age 50 and better. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member Susan Supak, as she sits down for another conversation with one of the people who makes our program so special. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Texas master birder and naturalist Scott Keister. Scott has an MS in environmental science and is a retired oil and gas geologist. His contributions to educating people about the natural world around them, as well as his efforts toward the preservation of natural habitats and the environmental health of our area are as significant as they are numerous. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. That's, that, that was a lovely introduction. <laughs> all true. All true. It's really a delight to have you here. Thank you. Let's explore your background a little bit. You're an Audubon North Central Texas Master Birder. I know it doesn't fit on the name tag. <laughs> um, North Central Texas is the 19 counties that center around the Metroplex. And it is not exactly a habitat distinct area, but it does represent an area in which certain populations of birds are more prominent and more common. So actually the Parks and Wildlife Department has sectioned off the state into, I can't tell you how many of these regions. And this is the region we happen to live in, North Central Texas. And how did you become a master birder? What does that entail? It means you go to class a lot, and Mm -hmm. you study a lot, and you go to a lot of field trips. And as I point out to most people, you make a lot of really bad IDs, and eventually you get very good at making better IDs. Which you are. I know. I've had the pleasure of being with you, and it's an extraordinary experience. Thank you. I often tell people, I have a friend who was at one point the president of Dallas Audubon. The difference between a good birder and a bad birder is a whole lot of poor IDs. Well, that gives me hope. (laughs) (laughs) That's great to hear. When did your interest in birding begin? Oh, when I was about... I'm holding my hand about the height of the microphone. Um, which is short, by the way. Which is short. My mother was a life member of the Audubon Society. Oh, okay. Runs in the family. From as long back as I can remember, it was not a red bird, it was a cardinal. Or it was a scarlet tanager or whatever. I wasn't allowed the option of, oh, that's just a bird. That didn't happen in our house when we were growing up. It, it was a definite thing. There were bird feeders and bird houses and bird baths all over our little tiny quarter acre backyard. That's terrific. So you were able to actually identify birds as oh, a child? Oh, yeah. For a I lot was, of species of birds. I was a, a nerd at a very early age. <laughs> Well, that's great. It's a great skill to have. I see that you were an oil and gas geologist, so your interest in the natural world spread to all kinds of areas. Oh, I would say I went into geology, as odd as this might sound, because my sixth grade teacher, when I was in high school, I stopped by to visit her and said I was thinking about computer science, and she said, don't you remember how much you loved rocks and all the fossils you collected at your grandparents' place? I said, yeah, I kind of did. 
And I thought about that. So my senior year, I took a geology class at my, that was offered at my high school, and that was that. And wow. I was going to be a geologist. I love that story. And I was going to be a geologist in part because it would take me outside and I could hike through the mountains and you can do all of those things if you don't mind working for the United States government or a university and you make a whole lot more money working in the oil industry. <laughs> so it was an early sellout on my part. Um, well, never underestimate the impact we can have on young people then, right? Because oh, it was your teacher that made that it was, it was my teacher and it was just an odd offhand comment. Of, I always thought you'd be a geologist. I thought, well, I'll try this geology class and see what I think. Well, what do you recommend for people like me that have always loved birds? I find them so fascinating, beautiful, but I can't walk in the woods and pick out bird songs and that kind of thing. Okay. If you're interested in becoming a birder, the first thing you need to do is get out and look. There are within 25 miles of where we are sitting at least four different bird walks that happen every month. And the best way to learn to bird is to go out and do it. The other thing to do is snag onto a mentor or two or three. You don't have to cling to them, but listen to what they say. The best learning I've ever done as a birder was through friends who were birders. There are thousands of, not thousands, but probably hundreds of different classes you can take from different institutions, organizations, that will give you some basic background in birding. If I were to recommend, I don't, I'm not shilling for Cornell University. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology offers many, many very excellent classes on birding. The first two are Be a Better Birder Shape and Size and color, Be a Better Birder Shape, Color and Pattern. And I think they're about $30 each. So it's affordable for most people. And that's a really good way to learn the skill of birding. You will not learn how to identify what is a cardinal and what is a summer tanager, but you will learn how to tell the difference when you look at those two birds so that you can figure it out. Birding is not just getting to be able to look up in a tree and go, oh, that's a blue jay. It's being able to get up, look at that tree, and oh, that's a blue jay, and the crest is kind of gray, and he's sort of slender. So I bet that's a blue jay that was born this spring. And to listen to a chickadee call and listen to the fact that it's got eight Ds at the end, is chickadee, dee, 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 and go, that chickadee's upset about something. And probably not you. Human beings are big, clumsy, and not much of a threat. We get about four Ds, maybe five Ds if we're, you know, too close. If you're a sharp shin hawk, you get eight, maybe nine Ds. Chickadees' calls approach a very, very simple language. And I only know that because I'm currently developing a talk on chickadees. Birds as a class, and they are a class, AVs as a class, are fascinating. Not just because they add a note of grace to life that nothing else does, but because they have these wonderfully complex, interwoven lives. And once you learn a little bit about them, if you're one of those folks like me, or Sue, you'll find yourself wanting to learn more about them, to have more understanding. I was thinking about that on the way up here, because as I turned off of the road to come up 35 to come to Denton, there was a whole kettle of vultures floating in the sky. And I didn't even have to, I just glanced over and said, oh, they're all turkey vultures. I know how they look when they fly. I know roughly the height that they fly at when they're out looking for food. And 
turkey vultures as, as a group would almost rather fall out of the sky than flap their wings again when, on a warm sunny day because they can ride thermals to get up in the air. So you just see these birds floating around and they're ugly as sin. They've got red heads with no feathers on them so they can poke their heads into dead bodies. They're delightful creatures. When they get too hot, they pee and poo on their legs to cool off. Oh dear. <laughs> if you get too close to a vulture and he gets upset with you, he'll puke in your direction. So here's this beautiful thing up in the air just soaring along and, and you know all these other things about it. It's like, oh, that's kind of a mixed bag of a being up there. <laughs> so it's learning not just identification, but learning about the histories and the lifestyles of birds that makes birding a full and interesting occupation or hobby. I have been in touch with the Cornell bird, what did you call it? The Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Yes, and they do have wonderful classes. They also have an app that's called, I believe it's Merlin. Yes. Do you Should recommend I... that? Oh, I absolutely recommend Merlin for new birders. Thank you for bringing that You're up. You're welcome. Well led, well led. Incredible. Merlin is kind of like five questions to the bird you're looking at. You open it up, and first of all, because it's on your phone, it knows like it knows exactly where you are, it knows the date, it knows the time of day, and keeps track of you as you go along. And it asks you five basic questions. How big is the bird? What colors are the bird? Where are you seeing it? What is it doing? Is it alone? Is it with other birds? There are five or six questions. And you answer the five or six questions and you hit the go button and it'll come up with a list of potential birds. I've never known it to be wrong. It isn't always the first choice, but it's one of those birds on that list. I have never known Merlin to be wrong. It's pretty so. helpful for me. And I also find it interesting to play the bird song because if I think I found the bird, it has a choice to play the bird song and then I can say, yes, that is what I'm hearing. And yeah. It really is very helpful to me. Yeah. Learning bird song is, first of all, it's a serious undertaking for one thing. And it does take practice, a lot of conscious practice, both in the field and out of the field. And the best way to learn a bird's song is if you hear the song, chase it down until you can see the bird that's making the sound. When you can do that, somehow the synapses in our brains connect all of those things together into a single cohesive little tidbit of information. And that is probably the best way to learn bird song. That's very interesting. I think, too, my ear needs to be trained to be as sharp as yours because you hear elements in a bird song that I have a little trouble <laughs> picking out. <laughs> That's All that is is years and years of practice. Certain groups of birds, for instance, the one we always hear this time of year at Clear Creek is the white-eyed vireo. It's a very sharp call. It's not melodious. It's a series of sharp notes, some of them a little bit musical and some of them sort of raspy and just chunk. And you learn to recognize the pattern and say, okay, that's a vireo. It's probably a white-eyed vireo because a lot of vireos have that same pattern of sharp notes that don't really form a tune that a human being could recognize. A lot of birds do form tunes that human beings can recognize. One of the great ways to learn bird song is mnemonics. And probably the most famous one in Texas is the barred owl. Who cooks for you? Who cooks for you all? <laughs> Just listening to that mnemonic, if you hear a barred owl, you'll know it's a barred owl. That's great. 
Do you need special equipment to be able to bird watch? I mean, we mentioned an app, but do you need anything else? Decent pair of binoculars. Mm -hmm. We can do the whole binocular thing for just a minute or two if you'd like. And I'm going to get up on my soapbox here. And if you have huge amounts of disposable income and you own $3,500 Swarovski binoculars, congratulations. A good pair of birding binoculars can be had for around $100, $150. A good serviceable pair. The important thing is somewhere in the description of those binoculars, it had better say waterproof. Not water resistant, not whatever else, waterproof. Because if moisture ever gets inside your binoculars, you'll never get it out. I don't care how long you pack it in rice or leave it in the, the toaster oven at 125 degrees, it will never get out. And you'll be out birding some morning when the humidity is just right and the lenses and mirrors inside the binoculars will fog up. And once that happens, you're done. You need another pair. You need another pair. Hey, I have another piece of equipment that I learned from personal experience. Boots. Oh, yes. <laughs> we have a little flooding here. Yeah, we do, have a little, we do have a little flooding here. Not lately, in case you no, haven't noticed. No. It's, been, it's 20, been, dry. been 29 days since the, we had a, a real rainfall. But always, if you're going to go on a bird walk... Always wear long pants, always wear closed-toed shoes. Preferably wear something that could get a little soggy because you're going to be wandering down pathways. Even at a place like Lilo where the bird walks are largely led on pathways that are uh, been covered with some kind of aggregate material, you're still going to be walking outdoors. So always wear long pants and always wear a pair of boots or a good sturdy pair of walking shoes. Now why would you want to wear long pants and closed-toed shoes? because there's this plant out there called Toxidodendron radicans, and it grows everywhere in this part of the state, and it's known commonly as poison ivy. Uh -huh. um, in fact, that's what that rash is on oh. my arm right there that you can't see. It's lovely. Um, I see it. <laughs> yeah, that's the cause of another one of my projects, which is tracking down radio tag box turtles at Leela, but we're not here to talk about radio tag box turtles. Anyway, it's always a good idea because you made, oh, you can see that bird up there in the top of that tree, but it's, you know, you'd like to get a little closer and you walk off the trail maybe 15, 20 feet to get a little closer and you're going very quietly and calmly so that the bird doesn't flush and you're not paying any attention to what you're walking through. And if it's the right time of year and the temperature's right, you could step on somebody who might want to bite you. Yes. So always wear boots, or at least wear a good pair, sturdy pair of walking shoes, and always, always, always wear jeans or some other kind of long pants. What about having just recently moved from the Northeast? We have a real problem with Lyme disease, with the deer ticks. Okay. I don't know that you have that problem here, but you have chiggers, which we didn't have to contend oh, with. Oh, yes. They don't make you potentially fatally ill, but they make you very uncomfortable. Absolutely. Um, Chiggers are tiny little, they're actually mites, they're not insects. I believe that's correct. Somebody will, somebody will catch me on that if it's wrong and I'll hear about it. And they have this wonderful ability to climb up your sacks and up onto your legs and then bite you. Usually someplace where there's binding material. Okay, so if they're inside your pants and they're on binding material, you know where they're biting you. Yikes. Okay. Okay. The absolute best way to take care of chiggers is to have what's called a sulfur sock which is basically just an old sack full of powdered sulfur from the local garden store. And before you go out and walk, bang the sack around your leg and your sock and then the outside of your pants. 
the sulfur will repel the chiggers and you'll at least only get a few rather than a whole bunch. This is important stuff. Even if you are to go out somewhere, for instance, at Lila, we have a fundraiser two or three times a year and it's normally out on the prairie. We always have a couple of socks around because if people are walking around out looking at things for the silent auction or whatever, they need to have banged their legs to keep the chiggers off of them because the chiggers don't care if you're there to donate money and, <laughs> and eat barbecue. They're still going to eat you. That sounds good. Now, you mentioned Leela a couple of times. Could you tell me what that stands for for, for oh, people who certainly. don't know? That stands for the Louisville Lake Environmental Learning Area. It is the 2,600 acres immediately below the Louisville Lake Dam. It was condemned by the Corps of Engineers when the dam was built in the 50s. In the mid-80s-ish, the Corps of Engineers had their mandates changed. And this history is pretty shaky, but somewhere in there they became responsible for restoration and recreation. And so Lila was sort of born as a partnership because between a couple of different universities and the Louisville School District and the City of Louisville Parks Department and the Corps of Engineers. Currently, the remaining partners are the City of Louisville Parks Department, the University of North Texas, and the Corps. CORE owns the property, the city of Louisville runs most of the educational programs, and the university oversees research and restoration. And I get involved in most aspects of what goes on there. There is a small full-time staff. The vast majority of it gets done on Lila's volunteers. Um, I read somewhere that you reached a milestone of 4,000 volunteer hours. Oh, you yes. You probably Recent well surpassed that by now. Recently, not that long ago, earlier in the year, when you're a master naturalist, which is my other big affiliation, it's back, that's probably my primary affiliation as a master naturalist, each year to remain certified you have to get 40 volunteer hours and then do eight hours of what's called advanced training, which is basically like CEUs for teachers and other people. You have to go out and learn something new to, to continue to broaden your understanding either of a particular topic or of general topics of interest to you. And I've been a master naturalist since 2003, and earlier in the year, I hit 4,000 hours. As of uh, this afternoon, when I get home and put this down as volunteer hours, because it'll count, I'll be at about 4,450. So I'm very That's close to terrific. I'm close to 4,500 hours at this point. And I'm a piker. There are master naturalists who've been at this a few years longer than I have. Uh, who have well over 20,000 volunteer wow. hours. Now, what is the difference between a naturalist and a master birder? Well, a master birder is specifically about learning and teaching about birds. I have to report my master birder hours into the Dallas Audubon Society on a regular basis. If I lead a bird walk or like the talk I'm working on for chickadees, all of those hours count towards master birders. The master naturalist hours are kept by the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. And those are the ones I think that you could say actually matter the most if you're gonna think about it that way. Parks and Wildlife counts every hour we put in at 19 bucks an hour that the state has saved. Wow. So master naturalist hours count for a lot. That's uh, significant. Yeah. And as a naturalist, I understand you do quite a bit in the field of amphibians. Years ago, when I first became a master naturalist, I was sort of interested in frogs, and I had an opportunity to get involved in a program that actually is no longer really active within parks and wildlife That's called it was called the Texas Amphibian Watch. And that was in the days before the Internet and before apps on your phone when you had to keep track of things on paper and send them in every year and that sort of thing. Texas Amphibian Watch has become a little more amorphous now. If you're interested... 
The Parks and Wildlife Department has an app where you can report citizen science information. And anytime you see just about any wildlife or even plants, I guess plants are still wildlife, you can go to the app and report where, and again, the phone will know where you are, what time of year it is, and so on, and report that you have seen a certain animal or a certain plant, and you can report it to the state and it becomes part of gigantic databases all over the place. That's why master birder stuff is so important because everything we do pretty much gets reported into uh, what's called eBird, which is the citizen science project run by the Cornell Lab. eBird has already been responsible for much better understanding of bird migration, changes in birds' ranges, because ranges are changing as the climate is changing. So all of this information gets reported, and now that we have gigantic databases on gigantic computers, people can look back on it and watch for change over time and just get a snapshot of how things are today. So it tells people a great deal about the status of the environment, I would imagine, it does. in an area. Oh, yes, it does. There have been several articles recently zipping through the Internet about how 25% of the bird population has disappeared since the 70s. Oh, no. And that's probably a pretty accurate representation because I can remember birding when I was a kid in the 60s. And the same species are still out there, but there are many, many, many more of them than there are now. And it's primarily habitat loss. There's a whole lot more people now than, well, when I was born in 1952, the population of the world was 1.8 billion. Now the population is, what, 7.6, 7.4, somewhere in there, billion people. And that's in 67 years. So I had interviewed a scientist on climate change in New York. And one of the things that he had mentioned that they were noticing was that in the Catskills, there were species of birds that were appearing earlier than they normally did. And not only that, they had birds that normally migrated away in the wintertime that were still there. Are you finding changes like that here? In oh, this sure. Area? Every golfer who's listening to this <laughs> knows that there are Canada geese on every golf course in North Texas and that they stay all year long. My sister ran a park district outside of Chicago for 20-something years. The bane of her existence were the geese that didn't migrate. They would just hang out at the golf course. Food was good, water was there, <laughs> and yes, they leave goose grease everywhere they go. Yes. More of interest with the birds, though, is that birds are tied to what is called photo period, which is basically just day length. Pretty much everything in their life revolves around day length to some, at least of their migratory habits and even breeding and so on. It all relates back to how long the day is. Insects, on the other hand, live their lives around temperature. So when it gets warm, that's when the insects' eggs hatch and the larvae are out eating the trees or whatever. By the way, you want them to do that. If you've ever looked at a crepe myrtle, you never see leaves off of a crepe myrtle. That's because nothing eats it. And you look at an oak tree, and you don't see leaves off of the oak tree either, but there are 150 different caterpillars that eat off of every oak tree in your backyard. That's a round number, folks. <laughs> um, so things are out of sync because the birds are migrating on a daylight schedule, but the insects are hatching on a temperature schedule. So if it gets warmer, say in North Texas, than it has been for the last several hundred or a couple of thousand years, 
That means that the peak of the food is probably going to be ahead of the peak of the birds. Oh my. And that can have an effect on things. Now, it's not as if every bird, every bird of a particular species looks around and says, oh my God, it's Tuesday and there were 12.4 hours of daylight today, I have to fly. It's not quite that easy, but they will migrate within a range of days or weeks. And if that range of days or weeks doesn't necessarily coincide with peak insect birth, they probably won't hit the place where they need to stop and get food at the time when the most food is available. Some will. Some of the early ones, they'll get there in correlation with the earlier hatching of the insects. Some are later. They won't get there. By the time they get there, the food will be more scarce. Over a very long period of time, that might adjust itself. The problem is that changes are happening very, very quickly. So the system doesn't have a chance to catch up with the current rate of change. I think it'd be the best way to say it. Well, that's concerning. I had read that Texas is remarkable in the variety and number of species of birds that we have Mm -hmm. because of the migrations. Oh, yes. 639 or thereabouts is the number of birds that have officially been recognized of having been seen in the state of Texas. And trust me, the Texas Ornithological Society has rules about these things and they keep very close track of stuff. Yes, the migration system is because we sit right under what is called the Central Flyway, which basically dumps from Central Canada all the way down through us every year. And we're right on the edge of the Mississippi Flyway, which, as you might imagine, goes over the river and points east until you get to the Atlantic coast. And depending on the weather, and, you know, birds don't always read, oh, I'm a Mississippi Flyway bird, I have to stay over there. It's like, I've always wanted to go to Texas. I can't go to Texas. <laughs> I've always wanted to see Texas, so I'm going to fly that way. So we get Central Flyway birds, we get Mississippi Flyway birds. It's not unusual for Pacific Flyway birds, a few of them at least, to be seen. And things like hurricanes can throw birds that would normally migrate further east of here further west so that they end up migrating through here. If there is a major hurricane in Louisiana during the peak of hurricane season, you can count on East Texas having an absolutely amazing year for hummingbirds because all the hummingbirds that were in that part of the country getting ready to migrate south, They all got blown west, or they all flew west to get away from the storm, so now they're going to migrate through Texas. Well, how interesting. That's incredible. We talked about the bird walks that you hold, and the Clear Creek Natural Heritage Center near Denton is an amazing place to go for a bird walk. I've had the pleasure of accompanying you there. And I know there you also have an extensive knowledge of the plants in the area. Mm -hmm. You mentioned those kinds of things. I mean, it's really Mm -hmm. quite a remarkable experience. You want to talk a little about the purpose of those and what people are exposed to? A bird walk is primarily look at birds, but birds live in an environment. They live in a habitat. Knowing something about the habitat doesn't hurt either. Particularly here in the next month or so, we're going to start seeing sparrows showing up. I think 16 different species of sparrows live here in the winter. Probably only one lives here year-round that's native. Everybody knows what a house sparrow is. That's the ones that make their nests in the letters over the Home Depot store and the ones that are floating around in the garden center and sometimes get in the building. Those are European old world finches. They're not even sparrows. Hmm. But the native sparrows pretty much all breed in the northern tier and into southern Canada and some of them all the way up into Alaska. But a whole lot of them winter here. Food's plentiful. Temperatures are nice. This is a long way to fly. 
So why not just hang around here? At Lila, we do, this will be our sixth winter, I think. One of the faculty members at UNT is an ornithologist, and we've been doing what's called a winter site fidelity study, which basically means you go out and band birds. This is another one of the things I do at Lila is bird banding. In the wintertime, you put the nets up, and banding requires you put up these huge mist nets. They're 9 by 36, give or take, and what, whatever that would be in metric. For the sparrow studies, at least, you literally go out and chase the birds into the nests. And what you're hoping to find is not a bird you haven't banded before, but a bird you have banded before. Hmm. Because that shows that that particular bird returns to the same place every winter. This is important stuff to know, because if the birds just scatter and go wherever, then how do you decide what to preserve, since you can't preserve everything? But if you can show that there's site fidelity, that the birds continue to return to the same place year after year after year, then you can say, well, this is a place that we need to save, because this is habitat that birds use in the wintertime. And so far, I think last winter, the oldest tenure, longest tenure, we had a bird we banded in 2014. So I've been coming back to the same area of the prairie out at Leela for three years running. And that's not bad for a bird that probably only lives five years in the wild. Oh my goodness. At, at the outside. Are there still mysteries in migration? Oh, good Lord, yes. Migration, while it's much better understood than it was, is still one of those things. Migration is partly learned and partly innate, depending on the species of birds sometimes. Waterfowl, geese, ducks, cranes, they have the urge to migrate, and they kind of know the direction to go off into, but mom and dad teach the kids how to migrate every year. They all go en masse. Songbirds, it's largely genetic. In fact, there are about, I think, 60 genes and one chromosome that pretty much encode migratory habits. So this is interesting because it's such a compact little thing. It's also interesting because you change one of those genes and it's going to change the migration habits. Uh, a great story related to this is not North American, but European. There's a little bird called a European black cap. It's uh, related to North American flycatchers. Before, in the years before World War II, it was a big deal for birders in the UK to see a European black cap because they all lived in Central Europe and they migrated to Africa, except for a few who had funky genes, funky directions for migration. And they would fly to the UK and hang out on the beaches in the UK in the wintertime. And it was, as I understand it, I've read about it, if someone saw a black cap, it became something. And, and the English, the Brits in general, are great gardeners and great birders. Everybody came to see the European black cap if it would show up. After the Second World War, British government chose to plant large quantities of berry-bearing, berry-bearing, <laughs> berry-having, fruit-bearing fruit bushes to hold down the sand dunes behind the beaches. This created a wonderful thing for the black caps, winter food. So instead of a few of them showing up and maybe only a couple making it back because they didn't survive the winter, the few that showed up ate like pigs, went home, survived their genetic makeup that said, don't go south, go, go west, continued to be perpetuated in a larger way. And now there's a, a sizable population of tens of thousands of European blackcaps that migrate to Europe every winter. They spend the winter in the bushes, and then they go back to Central Europe. 
And in point of fact, the ones that migrate to the UK get back first and have more success breeding because they don't have to migrate near as far as the ones that migrated to Northern Africa. It's actual evolution that's happening within time span that human beings can see it. And it also points out the strong genetic connection between migration habits and the actual birds. I have to give a plug for your Ollie classes, which are very interesting. You have included information on birds that we commonly see in our backyards, as well as one called in W.C. Fields Fashions, My Little Chickadee. Yes, that's the one that I'll be teaching this fall. I can't wait. I thought it very interesting when I read about the course that you talk about the warning calls that the chickadee has that are not only recognized by other small birds, but by multiple small animals as well. Oh, yeah. And a lot of this work was done by, you know, credit where credit is due. A lot of this work was done by a professor at the University of Montana named Eric Green. He's been kind enough to email back and forth with me once or twice when I had questions. The chickadee call, well, first of all, chickadees are one of, in the North America, there are seven different species of chickadees. Worldwide, there are 67, 68 species of paradie, which is the uh, family name, parids for short. Chickadees, titmice, and European tits. Tit In birddom, tit means a small, insignificant thing. It comes from an old English word. So there are coal tits and blue tits and great tits and giant tits and all these tits in Europe. In America, we have chickadees and titmice. We have one of the gray-capped chickadee that is really only found in interior Alaska. If you happen to see one when you're on the Viking River cruise in Scandinavia, it will be referred to as a Siberian tit. Hmm. Same bird, just a different name because you're on one side of the continent or another. But chickadees are what are called a nuclear species. In the off-season, when we're not breeding, they form mixed flocks with other small songbirds. But it's always the chickadees that are kind of the, the leading culprits. This is for two perfectly good reasons. More eyes means more birds looking for predators. More eyes means more birds looking for food. Some recent research done out of the University of Cincinnati in Lehigh in Pennsylvania suggests that the feeding aspect of it may be kind of a wash because yes, you have more birds looking for food, but you also have more mouths to feed. And at the same time, there's a very strict social hierarchy in these flocks. And the alpha birds will always get to eat first and eat the most, no matter who finds it. So It's true of a lot of species. (laughs) That's true. But the feeding thing, so the feeding thing may be a wash. There may be a slight advantage to more eyes looking for food. The big advantage is more eyes looking for predators. And the chickadee call approaches a simple language. It follows a five or six note sequence. They've been named A, B, C, E, D hybrid, and D. That has nothing to do with musical notes. That's just what ornithologists have settled on so they can describe each one of these tones. And they always follow pretty much the same order. It's usually A, A, E, B, C, and then either D hybrid or D. But the sequence can change in the number of repeats of the different notes and the emphasis on the different notes, it conveys information about the birds. And this is just now really becoming understood. I've been talking to a professor at the University of Tennessee, now I want to say Nashville. He's a specialist not only in cognitive language, but also in ecology and environmental science. It's interesting because the number of D notes at the end, the chicka D, 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 increases with the threat of a predator that's being seen. So if you see a screech owl or a sharp-shinned hawk, 
that's lots of D's at the end. If you see a bunch of birders stumbling through the woods, that's just <laughs> the usual maybe three or four D's. And if nothing else is going on, just to make conversation, you throw a couple in at the end of the call. If you hear multiple E notes, and you can kind of get a feel for what is an E note and so on after, after a little practice. If you hear several E notes, you, you need to look up because the bird is flying. The more E notes, the higher up they fly. Hmm. Uh, the more C notes, that means they're, they are actually flying. So the E notes may be I'm either high up in a tree or low down to the ground, or it may mean I'm flying high or low. So there's a lot of information encoded into it. And if you get into looking at the frequency of the different notes, because there is variation in the frequency, there's a lot of very fine work just getting really started where chickadee groups, these little territorial feeding flocks, they may actually have just slightly different frequencies with members of one flock than members of another flock. So you can recognize the members of your own flock, not, what, not only what they're saying, but that it's one of your group as opposed to one of the other group next door. Well, that is so interesting, the amount of information that you can gain from those kind of things. Uh, you know, by teaching people to observe and learn more about the natural world around them, from birds to amphibians to native plants, you help people from all walks of life become more interested in the environment and certainly help to galvanize conservation efforts. And I really thank you for that. Important to all of us. And thank you also, Scott, for speaking to me oh, today. Oh, sure. Sue, I hope you're right. One of the reasons I went back to school in my 50s and got that master's in environmental science was because I wanted to do something green and outdoors, mostly something outdoors after having spent 42 years in offices or on drilling rigs. And my original hope was to live outside. So Is now, there any message that you'd like to share with people before we sign off? Oh, goodness. There's another podcast that is out of a Cincinnati Nature Center called The Nature Guys. And it's kind of fun to listen to. It's, it's two older gentlemen, probably my age, now that I'm an older gentleman. And they always finish their podcast by saying, step outside and stay a while. There we go. So step outside and stay a while. Absolutely right. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with master birder and naturalist Scott Keister. Now, let's all go out and take a walk in nature. Thanks for listening.